Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Genesis 5 and Moses 6. And we're going to tackle Genesis 5 and kind of a scholarly look at the genealogy of these patriarchs, because I think there's some questions that we need to be aware of. And then we'll jump into the contribution of Joseph Smith adding to and producing Moses chapter 6. Now, just a reminder as we go through this, Joseph Smith is 24, almost 25 when he produces Moses chapter 6. He's just a kid. And when you look at the depth that he's producing, it's incredible. Because I would say that the contribution of Moses 6 is to put the gospel, prophets, and Jesus back into the Old Testament. And we're going to see in Moses chapter 6 that from the very beginning, Adam taught the role of Christ in our lives and the simplicity of the gospel. So we'll get to that, but let's start with Genesis chapter 5, a lineage of the patriarchs. And they lived for hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, which seems a little unusual, So, Mike, what's your take on that? What is your take on the age of these patriarchs? What are the different ways we can look at that? Well, to start, if you go to Genesis 5, there's 10 patriarchs. It's the lineage from Adam to Noah. And Adam lived, you know, 930 years. The person who lived the longest and everyone, you know, they even have a tree called the Methuselah tree, right? Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And A lot of people read this, and they do take it literally. And in the show notes, we link some of the statements from some of the early brethren that took it literally. But then we have a statement from James E. Talmadge, and he was an early apostle. A brilliant apostle. Right. And he says that the opening chapters of Genesis and scriptures related thereto were never intended as a textbook of geology, archaeology, earth science, or man science. And so from my reading of this, I look at Elder Talmadge's statement, and this is just my interpretation of what Elder Talmadge is saying, is he's giving us space or room to look at Genesis a little bit differently, that perhaps not everything in here is literal. So what I'm about to present is just a brief overview as to how Biblical scholars look at these texts. And just to throw something in, it's a common mistake to take Scripture as literal when it wasn't intended as literal. For example, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and talks to him at night, and Jesus talks about being born again. And Nicodemus made the mistake that Jesus was speaking literal. How can a man enter his mother's womb and be born again? And the Savior corrects him, I wasn't speaking literal. And then in the very next chapter of John chapter 4, he says to a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, if you drink of this water, you'll thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give, you'll never thirst. Well, she again thought it was literal. She said, give me this life-sustaining water, but don't draw this water. And Jesus, once again, I'm not speaking literal. So there kind of is a tradition in all of religion to maybe take something literal when it wasn't intended to be literal. And so I think there's a door here we can open up and say, well, maybe it wasn't intended to be literal, and what what are those possibilities? 
And I want to be really careful. I don't want to say necessarily that it's a mistake to take it literal. I don't want to make it sound like just because what I'm about to share means that I'm right. Because like, frankly, I don't know. I, I wasn't there. But as I read the Bible through the lens of history, I think it gives me a greater appreciation for what the scribes were doing and how the writings of Genesis played a role to help Israel understand their place in the world. And so that's going to be my approach. And I'm certainly not doing this to denigrate anybody from the 19th century in or out of the church who did take it literal. I want to be really careful and and make that statement. And then for those of you that don't read it literally, then the question is, well, why is this in here? My belief of Genesis 5 and 6 is there is this zeitgeist going on in the ancient Near East, this mindset that the Babylonians have that we are really awesome because our people descended from the gods and they our kings live these astronomically long lives and we're awesome and so the israelite scribe who's penning this history is like well you're saying that but guess what you're not we are so in babylon in samaria and in egypt we have these things called king lists and essentially what they are is their genealogical records of their kings and Sumerian scribes credited their kings with living really long lifespans and connected them back to their gods. So if you read the king's list, the kings lived these super long lives, and then the original king received kingship and writing and law from the god. Well, what do we have in Genesis? Similar pattern. Yeah, the same stuff. In fact, one of their kings, King Alagar, he reigned for 36,000 years. And we give it to you in the slides. We actually take you to the museum in Oxford, where you can see the Sumerian kings list for yourself. Now, you're not going to be able to translate it unless you can read the language, but we give you links where you can read for yourself the Sumerian kings list. And so if you get into the Sumerian kings list and you look at this, and then you read Genesis 5, you start to see patterns. So why did they do this? Why did the author of Genesis work to make his record look like a Mesopotamian kings list? Well, king lists were important because they were expressions of power and legitimacy in the Mesopotamian tradition. And so by placing his name at the end of a king list, a new king could enhance his status by associating himself with great kings of the past. Now, scholars suspect that the biblical author presented Israelite history in this same form, mainly to express the value and significance of the Hebrew people. This was probably at a time when it was written when Jewish identity was in some way threatened by Mesopotamian culture, perhaps during or even after the Babylonian exile. Remember, the exile is a big deal in the history of the writers of the Bible. In 586, when the temple is destroyed and the elites are taken to Babylon, scholars look at that time period from about 586 to about 520 as a fundamental time period in the history of Jewish culture and religion. And this is a time, I believe, when a lot of the texts of the Bible were edited. And Babylon plays a really big role in the Hebrew Bible. And so these early chapters in Genesis, I believe, they reflect some of the things going on when the writers are writing this. Let me just sum it up this way. I propose that Genesis 5 is an Israelite view of how their patriarchs were grand and glorious and lived long lives, tying them back to the gods, because that's what the people in Mesopotamia did. And the writers of the Israelite history are saying to the world, we are the legitimate heirs of truth. Now, that being said, doesn't mean I'm right. It just means that's one view. But then if that is correct, if that is a correct assumption, then we get into some other things to consider. 
the first thing I want to say is that the Israelite scribes are practicing modesty in their assumptions. I mean, if you read the ages in Genesis 5 and you read the Sumerian Kings list, the first thing you're going to see is, by ancient standards, the writers of the Bible are being modest. I mean, just do the comparison. thousand years versus 30,000 years. <laughs> yeah, totally different, right? And the second thing I want you to notice is that the lifespans decline as the narrative continues. Now, what message is that? How do we get from living close to 1,000 till we get to Abraham living 175 and Isaac to 180, and then we get to Moses, who's 120? Is there a message there? Now, the next thing I want to bring up is, okay, what does this mean to the Joseph Smith translation, to how we read that? I've thought about this for a long time, and I don't have an answer, but I look at Moses 6, which is the Joe Smith translation of Genesis 5, and the first thing I say to myself as I read this and as I read section 107 is that perhaps Joseph Smith took these verses literally. He was, after all, a 19th century American, and that's how they viewed Genesis 5. Maybe he was just simply saying the age of these patriarchs, that's not important here. What's important is this other material, so I'm just going to throw that in as it appears in Genesis. Yeah. Perhaps Joseph is not even concerned with the long lifespans and his focus is elsewhere. Maybe it never even dawned on him that that might be a question. I mean, for me as a person who lives in in this time period, these are questions I ask. And Joseph does that on other occasions. He'll quote a scripture a little bit differently and say, I could have rendered it a little bit differently. In other words, my point today is this, therefore this is how that scripture suits the purpose I'm trying to make. Yeah. Another thing that is a possibility is that perhaps Joseph is seeing some other text or vision, and he's rendering it for a modern audience. Now, there's a couple ways you can take that. One of those is he's actually seeing a text where those are the ages. That's what's written down, so he gives it. Another option is he's seeing the text, and he's inserting the ages that were assumed from the Bible because he's giving this to a modern audience. And finally, perhaps he's practicing accommodation speaking to a 19th century Christian audience in a manner that they would understand. That's what accommodation is. It's the speaker meeting the hearer where they are and not overwhelming them with information. And that's kind of how I read Moses 6 and 7. I mean, this is essentially the Book of Enoch, which is mind-blowing stuff. And we'll talk about the Book of Enoch later in this podcast, but if you read the Book of Enoch, or the books of Enoch as I refer to them, and then you read what Joseph is giving us, it's really dense and really rich, and it's direct. And so perhaps he's practicing accommodation, and perhaps there's just something I haven't even thought about. I frankly don't know, but I'm totally okay for me with Moses 6 reading the way it reads. And I don't think that the main thing of this lesson should be Genesis 5. Frankly, Genesis 5 could be some really boring reading. And so when I teach it, especially to teenagers, I just put a slide up that shows their ages. And I say, here's the patriarchs, here's their lifespans, here's what the Bible says, do you guys have any questions? Now let's get to the good stuff. (laughs) Yeah, like let's get, but generally they don't have any questions. But that in essence is the Genesis 5 narrative It's the book of the generations of Adam. And the purpose of it, I believe, is to draw a bridge. We're not going to talk about Adam anymore. We're going to shift to Genesis 6, and we're going to talk about Noah. Now, that's what the Bible does. But what's fascinating, and, and I know this is why Bryce loves the book of Moses, is because the book of Moses is coming to us from a seer, Joseph Smith. And Joseph Smith gives us what essentially in the Bible is just a couple verses on this guy named Enoch, 
Joseph Smith blows that up and expands and extrapolates so much more and gives us almost two chapters on this individual who is the seventh person from Adam, and his name is Enoch. And Enoch is the one that builds the city that's going to be taken up to heaven. And like I said, so much of this stuff isn't in the biblical text, but it is in what I call the subtext. You see, the writers of the Bible and the New Testament accepted the Enoch tradition as scripture, but the Enoch tradition becomes lost to us in the fourth century. Yeah. Now, a lot more has come forth on Enoch than just what we have in the Pearl of Great Price. So there is a book of Enoch out there. Actually, there are several books of Enoch out there, and I know some of you are going to be curious about them. So Mike, just give us a brief synopsis about the book of Enoch, and then we're going to get into Joseph Smith's JST version and the lessons that we learn from Enoch. Well, the Enoch tradition was a big deal in the ancient world. And what happened was by the fourth century, it gets lost. The reason why it gets lost is it gets banned. The early Christian leaders rejected the book of Enoch. And this could be its own podcast talking about what the book of Enoch is. And I think we want to be short in speaking. So essentially, there's first Enoch, second Enoch, and third Enoch. Now, don't let that overwhelm you. First Enoch, what is that? It's a text coming from an Ethiopian church. You see, in 1773, a Scottish explorer named James Bruce went to Ethiopia to find the book of Enoch, and it was preserved in an Ethiopian church. He secures copies of the text, and then eventually, in 1821, Richard Lawrence publishes the first English translation of the book of Enoch, and it's called First Enoch. Probably the most famous one you've heard of is R.H. Charles's translation that was published in 1912. This stuff's in the public domain. In the show notes and in the slides, we give you links where you can read First Enoch. My favorite translation is actually on the internet, and I don't know who made this, but the reason why I like it is this individual has linked it to biblical verses, and it's called The Book of Enoch with Biblical References. I've linked it in the show notes. You can go and read it for yourself. And if you read the book of Enoch, chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, These are the words of the blessing of Enoch, according to which he blessed the chosen and righteous who must be present on the day of distress. So that's kind of how it starts. On the right-hand side, there are chapters. The beauty of this version is as you scroll down, he shows you how Enoch is literally quoted everywhere. He's a big player in the New Testament and in Isaiah. There's so much in Isaiah that's referencing Enoch, and my take on this stuff is that First Enoch, I believe, is really old. So First Enoch has 108 chapters. The first 36 are called the Book of the Watchers. The Watchers, that idea comes from ear, which is this word in Daniel, and it's this really funky word. What does it mean? Does it mean angels? Does it mean watchers? Does it mean this otherworldly being? You see there are these ear, these watchers that are these angelic beings that are watching over mankind, and so much what I call mythological understanding of the Bible is happening in Genesis 6. So just know that there are these watchers that are going to come down in Enoch, they're going to come down to earth, and they're going to wreak havoc. And even Jesus is referencing these. You see, when Jesus is talking to Peter and he says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that discourse that Jesus is having with Peter is actually referencing First Enoch 6 through 11. 
So we will talk about this when we do Genesis 6, and it's mind-blowing. When you get into what's going on in the book of the Watchers and what Jesus does with this, I kind of get the chills every time I talk about it. So just put a pin in that, and we'll get to that later. But First Enoch is translated in 1821. Now, we reference this in Hugh Nibley's series. He did a series of lectures in the Enzyme called The Strange Thing in the Land, and he makes a very good argument that the 1821 edition of First Enoch in no way could have made its way into upstate New York in 1830. Now, why, why does Hugh Nibley go on to belabor that point? Well, I think his point is, is that Joseph Smith isn't sitting down with First Enoch, and by the way, first of all, it's massive. Even if he had access to it, he wouldn't know what to do with it. That's another argument he nobly makes. But his point is, Joseph didn't have access to that. Um, Second Enoch is called the Secrets of Enoch, or Second Enoch, and it was discovered in 1886 in the archives of the Belgrade Library. And a lot of times it's called Slavonic Enoch. And it was based on a text that was probably a Greek text, which was based on an earlier Hebrew or Aramaic version. Now, this is important to note because... We can't prove it, but the idea is is that the original versions were in Aramaic, which tells us that this is probably coming out of the Babylonian period. My point, I think Slavonic Enoch and First Enoch, these editions are from earlier editions, that are from earlier editions, which brings us to Third Enoch. It claims to be written by Rabbi Ishmael around 90 to 130 our time, written in Hebrew, but it has some Latin and Greek cognates in it, which brings us then to what I call the Book of the Giants. In Cave 4 at Qumran, so after World War II happens, um, in the 1940s, these scrolls are discovered at Qumran, and a 2nd century BC text, fragments called the Book of the Giants, which is coming from Enoch, and on these fragments is the name of Mahuja. We're going to get into Mahuja later in this podcast, but he's going to be this individual that's going to approach Enoch and question him. So you look at this and say, well, how did he get that right? It's got to be evidence that Joseph received it from inspiration, because there's nowhere else Joseph could have received it from. Yeah. And when Hugh Nibley reads these fragments, his mind lights up. He says, first of all, the Qumran fragments of the Book of the Giants weren't even discovered till 100 years after Joseph's dead. I mean, he's dead in 1844. 100 years later, we get these fragments with Mahuja questioning Enoch. I think that's pretty cool. I like that. It's not going to prove anything to anyone. It's not going to make him join the church. But from a worldly perspective, you look at this and say, well, how did he get that right? And so we link this stuff in the show notes, and you can read Hugh Nibley's arguments. I also want to credit David Snell for writing a really good article called Joseph's Luckiest Guess from the Book of Moses about Enoch's pal Mahuja. Now, I would recommend you read that. That David Snell is going to make the arguments better than we are in this podcast because of time. But just know that this is the historical background to the book of Enoch. And the Enoch tradition was a big deal in the ancient world. And it gets lost. And we'll talk more about why in the next podcast. So now let's jump into what Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer, reveals through his seeric eyes about the teachings of Enoch in Moses chapter 6. But first, there's something fun here that I want to point out. In Moses 6, 5 and in verse 46, it calls the scriptures a book of remembrance. Now, that's a fun thing to have a discussion with your children or your class about, that they would refer anciently to their scriptures as a book of remembrance. 
What are one of the main roles that the scriptures do? They help us remember. Now, just to compare, in Alma chapter 37, where Alma is passing the records on to his son Helaman and talking about their worth and their value, he says in Alma 37 verse 8, for behold, they have enlarged the memory of this people. Having the scriptures enlarges our memory of what God has done to others. You'll find that also in the title page of the Book of Mormon and in the very oft-quoted promise of Moroni in chapter 10, where he says, I would exhort you that when you shall read these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you would remember how merciful the Lord has been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts." I think you could have a wonderful discussion with your family, with your class, about the Scriptures being a book of remembrance, and that one of the reasons we need to read the Scriptures is to remember the great things that God has done, and to talk about them, and to build memorials in our heart about what He's done, so that we know that He's going to do great things to us. Let your children read the Scriptures and remember. Now, That being said, let's get to the meat of this week's Come Follow Me, and that is watch the role of the prophet and the role of Jesus and his gospel take a prominent position in Adam's life and in everyone that follows. The Messiah was a central figure in every generation of the gospel. And so we're going to go back to Enoch's day, who's going to quote Adam and put Jesus in his rightful place. But first... Let's get to the revealers of Christ. Let's get to the prophets. So we get to this young man named Enoch, who, by his own admission, is slow of speech, and he's young, and he's but a lad, but he's called of God to be a prophet. Now, why does the Lord need prophets? I think the best explanation for why the Lord needs prophets is in verse 27. The Lord says to Enoch, Enoch, my son, Prophesy unto this people, and say unto them, Repent, for thus saith the Lord, I am angry with this people, and my fierce anger is kindled against them for... Now, here are three reasons we have gone astray. I think we can all admit that humanity and Heavenly Father's children are guilty of all three of these. Number one, our hearts are waxed hard. Number two, our ears are dull of hearing. And then number three, probably the great problem with mortal beings is that our eyes cannot see afar off. We cannot see enemies coming around the corner. We can't see into the future, into the past. We can't see the secret things that conspiring men do in dark chambers. We can't see plots to destroy us. Our eyes cannot see afar off. And because of that, look at verse 28. We go astray, we deny him, and we seek our own counsels in the dark. Now, because my eyes cannot see afar off, the Lord says, I'm going to help you. So in verse 35, very symbolic, he says to Enoch, anoint thine eyes with clay and wash them. Wash the world out of your eyes. 
And as we talk about this, I have in my mind a picture of President Russell Nelson and the Lord coming to him and saying, anoint your eyes with clay and then wash them. Prophets have washed the world out of their eyes. And then he says in verse 35, thou shalt see. And that's why we need a prophet. People get caught up in the title prophet, that their role is to predict the future and prophesy what's going to happen. And I don't know that that's the best view we ought to take. Their role is to see what I can't see. Danger coming, conspiracies. My eyes cannot see afar off, but prophets have washed the world out of their eyes and they see. Look at verse 36, one of the great definitions of what prophets see. And he beheld spirits that God had created. He beheld also things which were not visible to the natural eye. Once again on earth, there is a seer. There are 15 of them. And they see what are not visible to the natural eye. And because of that, look at verse 36. They conclude, a seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. A seer. That's what a seer is. Now, let me give you an interesting cross-reference. Go to the Book of Mormon, and in the early chapters of Mosiah, when Ammon shows up to help Limhi get back to Zarahemla, do you remember the whole Zenith and King Noah and Limhi experiment, and they have, they're now slaves to the Lamanites, and they want to get back but don't know how to get back, and all of a sudden... Ammon, not chop the arms off the Lamanites Ammon, but a different Ammon, shows up and he's going to help guide them back. Well, Limhi asks Ammon, is there anyone that can help translate? Because I've got these plates that we found while we were trying to get back to Zarahemla. And Ammon says in verse 13, Mosiah chapter 8, verse 13, O king, I can tell you that there's a man who can. He has a Urim and Thummim, and he can look, and he's called a seer. In verse 15, King Limhi says, well, a seer's greater than a prophet. And I want to pause on that verse. Limhi's conclusion is, I'd rather have someone who can see danger coming than can prophesy of the future. I cherish the role of seer. And Ammon corrects it in verse 16. No, 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 no. A seer is a prophet. They don't distinguish. President Russell Nelson is prophet, seer, and revelator. And yes, he can predict the future. He can prophesy. But his main role is to see. Now look at verse 17 and make a list. I would encourage you to write these down because there's something about the repetition that's going to impress you. What do seers see? According to Ammon, as he answers the question, Mosiah chapter 8, verse 17, first on the list is things which are past. Yes, prophets see the past. And then let's write the one that the world associates with the word prophet. They can know of things to come. They see the future. But it's not their ability to predict the future that gets emphasized here. He's going to add four more things to the list, and they're all the same thing. 
he's going to say that prophets see secret things, hidden things, things which are not known, and things which otherwise could not be known. That's what prophets see. Yes, they see the past. Yes, they see the future. But the emphasis here is secret things, hidden things, things which are not known, and things which could not be known. Enoch saw things not visible to the natural eye. Let me do one more addition to that. When the Jackson County saints were kicked out of Jackson County, and the Lord is trying to explain why they were kicked out, he gave this fascinating parable in section 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Starting in verse 43, he says, let me see if I can explain this to you using a parable. And he talks about a certain nobleman had a spot of land, and he planted olive trees, and he set watchmen, and he told them to build a tower so that one might overlook and be a watchman. And when the enemy shall come, not if, when the enemy shall come, that's DNC 101.45, when the enemy shall come, he will warn them. But they never put the watchman on the tower. And so the city gets torn down, the vineyard gets torn down. And in the rebuke, the Lord of the vineyard says, why, what is the cause of this great evil? Ought you not to have done even as I commanded? And after you planted the vineyard and built the hedge and set watchmen, shouldn't you have built the tower and set a watchman upon the tower and watched for my vineyard and not have fallen asleep, lest the enemy should come upon you? Now listen to what the Lord's going to say in 101 and see the connection to Moses 6. Behold, the watchman upon the tower would have seen the enemy while he was yet afar off. Do you see the same wording? The Lord's drawing attention back to Enoch and Moses 6 and why there are prophets. And what he's saying is, the real problem in Jackson County is you did not establish the prophet in your life like you should have. And isn't that a similar problem today? that people think Russell Nelson is just an ordinary man. But he sees hidden secret things, things what no one can know. Now that is going to lead to a problem because prophets see what I don't see. We often don't react well to their prophecies, to their warnings. When a prophet sees danger and I see no danger whatsoever, Sometimes we're offended. Now go back to Moses chapter 6 and think about modern prophets as we read Enoch. In verse 36, a, a seer has the Lord raised up among his people. But because the people have eyes that cannot see afar off and the prophet can see things not visible to the natural eye, end of verse 37, all men were offended because of him. And that's a common reaction. Can you think of a time where a prophet says something and people are offended? And then the end of verse 38, a strange thing is in the land. A wild man hath come among us. That's what Russell Nelson is to a lot of people. A wild man. 
who sees things that I don't see. And so it fascinates me that in back in Doctrine and Covenants section 21, when the Lord is giving Joseph to the church, on the very day the church was organized, the Lord says, I have appointed a seer among you, and you need to accept what he says in all patience and faith. I love that comment, that it requires patience and faith to accept a prophet because I don't see what he sees. So I trust, and I accept his words in patience and faith, and I move forward. And we're going to see that a lot in the Old Testament. We've seen it a lot in the Book of Mormon. So that's kind of the introduction in the early days of this planet that we need a prophet who sees what we don't see. And now that's Enoch. Powerful message. A seer hath the Lord God raised up unto his people. This is called the call narrative. And Stephen Ricks wrote a really good paper on the call narrative pattern for prophets. And it's essentially six points. The divine confrontation, the introductory word, and that's essentially Moses 6.27, where God says to Enoch, Enoch, my son, prophesy unto this people and say unto them, repent. That's the confrontation and the introductory word. And then he gets the commission, which is a continuation of verse 27, where it talks about God's anger. And I love this, Bryce, where the context of God's anger it's really because they're hurting themselves. Like he's angry, not because he's angry, but he's angry because he's like... You can't bless them. I can't give you a blessing that I want to give you because you're not doing the things that bring the blessing. That's why he's angry. He loves them so much and he weeps. I can't wait to talk about Moses 7. So then after the commission, Enoch objects, and that's verse 31 where he says, I'm but a lad. And Ricks points out so many marvelous connections with the objection from prophets starting with Exodus 3 with Moses, where Moses says, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh? Or Gideon, where he says, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. That's Judges 6.15. A lot of times prophets do object, and they say, I'm slow of speech, or I'm but a lad. And so what happens in this narrative is verse 32 through 34 of Moses 6, God gives him divine reassurance, where he anoints his eyes And then I love verse 36 where it says that Enoch beheld the spirits which God had created, and he beheld also the things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, a seer hath the Lord God raised up unto his people. You see, the reassurance that he could see was that God was with him. And then the sign is also connected to this. God is with him, and the sign is that he sees, that he sees these things that were not before seen. Well, we see the, the reassurance in the sign also in Gideon's call narrative, and also with Moses. We'll talk about this when we get to Exodus, but Moses has a sign given to him, or a token, as it's called, that he is to represent God. So I like the call narrative, and it's all setting us up for the message. And so the message really comes as a result of this question, and that's verse 40. Moses 6 verse 40 says, There came a man unto him, whose name was Mahajah, and said unto him, Tell us plainly who thou art, and from whence thou comest. 
in essence, what he's asking him is, give us your credentials. What makes you so special, Enoch, that you can tell us your message? And can you hear the world asking that of Russell M. Nelson as well? President Nelson, who are you that we should listen to you? What are your credentials? And so that's kind of why we study that this week. Yeah. And to me, Bryce, really the meat of this entire lesson is his discourse. From verse 41 to the end of Moses 6, that's the meat, or what I call the money, those verses. And so obviously, this being the most important thing, let's talk about it. Let's talk about what Enoch's message is. And the simplicity of it. Some people expect the gospel of Jesus Christ to be this long, complicated, majored thing, and it's so simple. And because it's simple, sometimes we we make more of it than we should. And so I'm going to introduce it with the Savior's own words. Let me, let me start with Jesus' words, and then we're going to point out that that same truth was taught to Adam and to Enoch and every Old Testament prophet, that it's the same plan of salvation. It's the same gospel that saves us today and saved Adam and everyone in between. So turn with me to 3 Nephi chapter 27. Jesus has come to the Americas. This is one of his visits. He comes and goes. And on one of his returns, they've been arguing over the name of the church. And he kind of scolds them and says, well, that's a no-brainer. He says in verse 8 that if it's my church, it carries my name. So my church has my name. And then he throws in at the very end of verse 8 that it also has to be built upon my gospel. So then he's going to clarify that. In verse 13, he says, I have given unto you my gospel, and this is the gospel. Jesus Christ says, this is the gospel which I have given you. And then by verse 21, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So the Savior himself summarizes the gospel between verses 13 and 20. And he says, this is my gospel. It fits in those verses. So from the Savior's mouth, what is the gospel? Well, I'm going to read it from his own lips. That I came, I'm back in verse 13 of chapter 27, 3 Nephi 27. I came into the world to do the will of my Father because my Father sent me. And my Father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ is his atonement. That's number one. The center of the gospel is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Number two, after that I have been lifted up upon the cross, I might draw all men unto me. And as I have been lifted up by man, even so should men be lifted up by the Father. So number two is everyone's going to be resurrected. Because of the atonement of Jesus Christ, everyone is going to be resurrected, and then to stand before me to be judged of their works. So there's the background. Because of the atonement, everyone's going to be resurrected, and everyone is going to stand before God to be judged. Now, you don't need to be afraid of that day. And in the next few verses, we find some words that we would like to describe us on Judgment Day. And the, here's the gospel. The gospel is that you can be these three words when you stand before the Father. The first word is in verse 16. You can be guiltless. You can stand before the Father guiltless, not because you didn't do anything wrong, but because you were washed, you were cleansed. That's the offer. That's the offer. 
You can stand before God guiltless. In verse 19, he's going to use the word washed or clean, we would say, I think. The goal isn't to live a perfect life. The goal is to stand before God having been washed. And then the third word is in verse 20, spotless or sinless, I think we would say. You can stand before God guiltless, washed, and sinless, even though you have committed sins, if you do five things. And notice which one gets repeated the most. Back in verse 16, in order to be guiltless, I have to repent and be baptized and endure to the end. In verse 19, in order to be washed, I have to have faith and repent and be faithful unto the end. Interesting which one he repeated, right? So now I have faith, repentance twice, baptism, and enduring and being faithful to the end. And now one more, verse 20, in order to be spotless, I have to repent. That's three times he used that phrase. Repent come unto him, be baptized, and be sanctified by the reception of the Holy Ghost. And his emphasis is on repentance. And you do that to the end of your life. You will be guiltless, washed, and spotless on judgment day. Now that's from the Savior's own lips. Now go back to Moses chapter 6 and hear what Enoch taught his people. He says in verse 48, because Adam fell, we are, and by his fall came death, and we are made partakers of misery and woe. So we talked about that last week, that it was for our sake that Adam fell, and now we can choose. By nature, verse 49, we have become carnal, sensual, and devilish, and that we are here in a fallen world to make choices. God, verse 50, hath made known unto our fathers that all men must repent. And now notice the list in verse 52. See if this sounds familiar. This is what Enoch taught so many years ago. If thou wilt turn unto me and hearken unto my voice and believe and repent of all thy transgressions and be baptized even in water in the name of mine only begotten son, there's Jesus coming into his role who is full of grace and truth, which is Jesus Christ, the only name which shall be given under heaven, whereby salvation shall come unto the children of men. If you believe and repent and be baptized, we pick it up and say, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, asking all things in his name, and whatsoever you shall ask, it shall be given unto you. Does that list sound familiar? So now watch what happens. Now Enoch starts quoting Adam to point out that, remember, Enoch was seven generations from Adam, so it's been a long time since Adam taught, but Enoch wants to point out that it's the same doctrine that Adam was taught. So starting in verse 53, he quotes Adam, and Adam asked the father in verse 53, why is it that men must repent and be baptized? And the answer, verse 53, I have forgiven thee the transgression of the, in the Garden of Eden. And hence came the saying abroad that the Son of God hath atoned for the original guilt, wherein the sins of parents cannot be answered upon the heads of their children. So now, verse 55, we are born into a world of sin. 
And I'm going to have Mike talk a little bit about kind of the history of that phrase, conceived in sin, and the meaning of that, because that's going to, that may be a hiccup for you this week. But we are born into a world of sin, and we grow up in that world, and sin conceives in our heart, and we taste bitter that we may know to prize the good. We are here in the environment that we need to have in order to have agency and choice and to make the choices that we need to make. Therefore, verse 56, it is given unto them to know good from evil and that they are agents unto themselves. Man, this is just, this is our doctrine. This is coming right out of the Book of Mormon. This is 2 Nephi chapter 2. This is Lehi speaking to Jacob. But what we're reading is Adam's teachings. It hasn't changed from the beginning of the world. We are agents unto ourselves. We know the difference between good and evil. Now, if you want to be guiltless and washed and spotless on Judgment Day— Verse 57, all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God, for no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. Now, my job as a parent, verse 58, this is Adam still. I give unto you a commandment to teach these things freely unto your children. And perhaps the most important verse in this week's study of Come, Follow Me is what I need to teach my children, that by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death. And inasmuch as we were born into the world by water and blood and spirit, I came into this world and became immortal by water, my mom's water, by blood, my mom's blood, and the spirit, my spirit entering my body. He says, even so, we must be born again into the kingdom of heaven of water, baptism, and of the Spirit, Holy Ghost, and be cleansed by blood, Jesus' blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that you might be sanctified from all sin and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. That's the simple gospel. And just like my mom and dad became my parents when I was born into this world, Jesus becomes a parent when I am born into his kingdom, when I, through baptism, make covenants with him. Jesus becomes my father. Now, that's very clearly taught in the Book of Mormon. And you know where they got it from because Adam is teaching it. Listen to the words of the Book of Mormon. This is King Benjamin to his people. Mosiah chapter 5, King Benjamin says, Because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you, For ye say ye our hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. Thus Adam taught. Back in Moses chapter 6, Adam taught. Verse 68, Jesus is now speaking. Thou art one in me, a son of God. And thus may all 
become my sons. Now, all of us are children of God the Father. He is the Father of our spirits. But only through baptism and covenants do we become the sons and daughters of Christ. And so as I was born into the world by water, spirit, and blood, I need to be born again. I need to be born into the kingdom of God by water, spirit, and blood, and he, Jesus, becomes my father. And so Adam says back in verse 52, Moses 6, verse 52, this is the plan of salvation unto all men through the blood of mine only begotten. It's that simple. And it isn't any more or less than that. Now, do we need to go on missions? Yes. Do we need to minister and visit our ministering families? Yes. Do we need to pay our tithing? Yes. Do we need to save the dead? Yes. All of those things are important, but don't lose sight of the heart and soul of the gospel. And that is through faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost, I become a child of Christ. And because I am, when I stand before the Father to be judged, I will be washed, not because I was perfect and led a perfect life, it's because he washed me. I will be washed, have no sin, and therefore will feel guiltless on Judgment Day. That's the plan of salvation. Now, unfortunately, the simplicity of that gospel is going to be lost in the Old Testament, and so you see the need to restore those plain and precious truths today, and hence the Book of Mormon brings it back. Yeah, I really like how you went from, here's what Jesus says in just these few eight verses, here's the gospel, and then you went to Enoch, and it's the same message, and this is what's missing in the Old Testament. We, we're missing Jesus. When the angel tells Nephi many plain and precious things have been pulled out of the Bible, I think we modern readers read it to say that the New Testament was messed with. Now, that may have been the case, but I think from Nephi's perspective, no. The Holy One of Israel has been pulled out of the Bible, the suffering Messiah that would come down to earth and die and be resurrected, and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been removed from the texts. And so you don't read anything like Moses 6 anywhere, from Genesis to Malachi. It's just not there. But I think one of the messages of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it was there, that Enoch did teach these things. And Enoch got it from Adam, because Adam taught it. Yeah. Everyone has taught it. That's a radical way to read the Bible, and we're the only ones reading it this way because we have this man named Joseph Smith who's a seer. It's really revolutionary in the way that we read the Old Testament. And so I'm going to just say this. I feel a little bit bad right now because we're going to go from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a couple rather tricky concepts, but I think it's good for us to understand that that the scriptures really are deep. And so we can read it on a basic level, and then we can kind of go a little bit deeper. So if you go into that verse that talks about the children conceived in sin, so I'm, I'm referencing Moses 6.55, and I'm just going to read what it says. The Lord spake unto Adam, saying, Inasmuch as thy children are conceived in sin, even so when they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in their hearts, and they taste the bitter, that they may know to prize the good. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we just read this, and we're clearly reading this through the lens of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that's good. That's a, and by the way, that's, I, I want to stick to the basics. 
But I think it's also important for us to know that there's a whole other reason for evil in the biblical narrative, according to the authors of the Bible and the New Testament. And it's really described explicitly in the book of Enoch, in 1 Enoch 6 through 11, but it's sanitized or it's repackaged in Moses to make it much more simple. So back to the verse, children being conceived in sin. This does not ascribe sin to the act of conception between married parents, but rather speaks to the fact that because of the fall, children come into a world saturated with sin. I think that's a very basic way to read it. But there's another level, and this is Dr. Nibley's assertion. He says this, applying this verse, Moses 6.55, to the setting of Enoch's preaching, Hugh Nibley cites a passage from the Book of the Giants, remember from this Enoch literature, and he observes that the wicked people of Enoch's day did indeed conceive their children in sin, since they were the illegitimate offspring of a totally amoral society. And it's this subtext which has been lost because the book of Enoch has been lost. And that subtext is this, and it's, it's really sounds kind of weird, but here it is. And you can read this in 1 Enoch 6 through 11. The subtext to this is that there was a rebellion in heaven, that there were a group of angels in this text that came down to earth and covenanted to rebel against God. And they made this race of giants, that these watchers, these ear, came down and they mated with mortal women and they made giants and that they taught these children evil. I don't necessarily believe this. This is rather mythological in the common sense of the word that we say myth. Now, That's happening here in Moses, but it's kind of happening in the background. So we're going to do this in more detail next time, but just go with me. I know I'm going ahead, but go to Moses 7 and look at this verse. Verse 23 says that Zion was taken up into heaven, but if you go to verse 24, it says that there came a generation upon generation, and Enoch was high and lifted up in the bosom of the Father and of the Son of Man. And behold, the power of Satan was upon all the face of the earth." And he, Enoch, saw angels descending out of heaven, and he heard a loud voice saying, Woe, woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth. Now, who are those angels? It just says angels. And I think modern readers read this to think, oh, good angels are coming to the earth. Well, if good angels are coming to the earth, why does verse 25 end with, Woe, woe be unto the inhabitants of the earth? So here's my contention. I think that's these bad angels in Enoch. And what Joseph is doing is he's packaging this for a 19th century audience to make it as simple as possible so that we don't get weirded out. And so what do I do when I read the scriptures? I'm like, okay, what's the weird background? This is how I go. So I apologize. But look at verse 26. And he beheld Satan and he had a great chain in his hand and it veiled the whole face of the earth. And look what it says at the end of verse 26. And his angels rejoiced. My take is the angels in verse 25 are the same ones in verse 26. So then we get the good guys. Verse 27, Enoch beheld angels descending out of heaven, bearing testimony of the Father and the Son. My contention is Moses 7 is a spiritual war. There's good angels and there are bad angels, and they're fighting for the souls of men. And this story in Genesis 6 that we're going to talk about in a few podcasts, the story of these fallen angels, these watchers that come down and make this race of men, that is the backdrop to Moses 6.55, that thy children are conceived in sin. In other words, your children, Adam, are under threat. Now, there's this one narrative about a dialogue between the adversary and God, and the adversary says, essentially, I'm going to take the spirits that follow me, 
and they're going to do some really bad things. And you can kind of see this in Revelation, where the third host of heaven, the stars, remember stars are spirits, they're cast down to the earth. And if you've been to the temple, you kind of know what I'm talking about. In other words, that there's a spiritual war, that the, the forces of darkness are fighting against the forces of light. And that's the backdrop to all this stuff. And it's really described explicitly in the book of Enoch, in First Enoch 6 through 11. But it's sanitized or it's repackaged in Moses to make it much more simple. But you can see it even in the simple gospel narrative that by being born again, Jesus becomes my father. Well, if I reject Christ and go the opposite direction, then couldn't it be said that Satan becomes my father? Yeah. And that I am a child of Satan and that I've been conceived in sin. So in Alma, he kind of picks up that same narrative. He says in Alma chapter 5, the good shepherd doth call you, yea, and in his own name he doth call you, which is the name of Christ. And if you will not hearken unto the voice of the good shepherd, to the name by which you are called, behold, you are not the sheep of the good shepherd. Now, if you're not the sheep of the good shepherd, behold, of what fold are you? I say unto you that the devil is your shepherd, and ye are of his fold, and now who can deny this? Behold, I say unto you, whoever denieth this is a liar." Therefore, if a man bring forth good works, he hearkeneth unto the voice of the good shepherd, and if he doth follow him. But whosoever bringeth forth evil works, the same becometh a child of the devil. See, there it is. For he hearkeneth unto his own voice, and doth follow him. So there's kind of that same theme underlying some of the Book of Mormon teachings, that you are either conceived in righteousness and become a son of Christ, or you're conceived in sin and become a son of Satan. Yep. Excellent. So I just want to look at Moses 6.57. I want to talk a little bit about man of holiness. Wherefore, teach it to your children that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there or dwell in his presence. For in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name. And the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge, who shall come in the meridian of time. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? It was as though he asked, who do men say that I am? Well, Jesus is the Son of Man, and his Father is a man of holiness. The whole body of of revealed writ attests to the eternal verity that the supreme God is a holy man. Now, there are some really interesting things you can do with this word. Holiness, the Hebrew word, kodesh or kedoshah, it can mean a couple things, but really it's connected to the temple. Kodesh kodeshim is the holy of holies. That's what the holy of holies means, but it really means the holiness of holinesses. So if God is naming himself ish kodesh, ish is man, the man of holiness, could it mean that man of holiness possibly could mean the man of the temple? And I would submit that that's a really good rendering of Ish Kodesh, man of holiness, that he is a man of the temple. And if you think about what the temple is, it's about coming home to him. Now, another interesting thing is if you take Kedushah, which can mean holiness, but it can also be connected to the divine feminine, Ish can also mean husband, not just man. So another interesting, what I would say a provocative way to look at Ish Kodesha would be the husband of the divine woman. 
Now as a Latter-day Saint, I love this. I'm like, yeah, Heavenly Father is a man of holiness, but why is he holy? His holiness is connected to his relationship with his wife. I think that's beautiful stuff. Now, we read also that his name is man of counsel, and that's ish etzah, and that root is the same word for the tree. The etz, or the tree, is a direct connection to Heavenly Mother. So another way to look at man of counsel, ish etzah, is the husband of the tree lady. So I love this idea of man of holiness as a code for a man of the temple, but even a married man. I think that's beautiful stuff. So I just wanted to say that about man of holiness before we close out. Now we're going to kind of talk about what is a really great verse, verse 63. Yeah. Given the role of Jesus in all of this, given that Adam taught Christ and Enoch taught Christ, and the whole purpose of the gospel is that through water, spirit, and blood, I am born to Christ and he becomes my father, This chapter of Moses 6 ends with a beautiful challenge, and that is to find Christ everywhere. Find types and lessons of Christ. He says, after he announces, this is the plan of salvation unto all men through the blood of mine only begotten, in verse 62, he then says, all things have their likeness, and all things are created and made to bear record of me, both things which are temporal and things which are spiritual, not just things in the gospel, but things in the world, things in nature. He adds things which are in the heavens above, clouds, birds, constellations, stars, things which are on the earth, like trees and mountains and rivers, things which are in the earth, and things which are under the earth, both above and beneath. All things bear record of me. Find Jesus everywhere. Find him. I studied biology for my bachelor's degree, and every day I saw God in the cells of our bodies. I saw God in chemistry. You can find God in everything that you study. Find God in language. Find God in words. I love that he just pointed out back in verse 59 Find Jesus in motherhood. He often compares atonement to motherhood. And he says, inasmuch as you came into this world through water, blood, and spirit, that's mom, you're born again through Jesus. In other words, find Jesus in motherhood. Find Jesus in fatherhood. Find him in the sunrise. Find him in the sunsets. Find him in the cold, bitter winter nights. And then the beautiful spring and the summer. Find Jesus in the snow that covers in a blanket of clean white. Find him everywhere. Find him in trees. Do you realize that trees take in carbon dioxide, which is a poison to us, and give off oxygen, which is life-giving? How is a tree like Jesus? Find Jesus everywhere you go. Let him play that prominent role in all of our lives. And so we end this podcast with that quest and that challenge, that everywhere you go, find Christ. Find him in our church. Find him in the doctrines. Study the doctrines so that it connects you to Christ. Find him in the temple. 
find him in the scriptures. Find him in the ordinances of the gospel. Find him in primary songs. Find him in prayer. Find him everywhere. Find him in your home, in your family, in the food that you eat. All things bear record of him. Of that, I stand as a witness and have spent my life in awe. I stand all amazed at everywhere I find him. I find his fingerprints all over the people I love, all over the doctrines I love, the scriptures that I love, the nature that I love, this planet that I love. I have found Jesus in some of the places I didn't expect to find, and it strengthens my testimony of him. And so we leave you with that quest and that challenge to find him in all things, connect with him so that we make covenants with him and he becomes our father and we become his children. Find Jesus in all that you do. And with that, we thank you for sharing your time with us this week. We will see you next time when we cover Moses 7. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.